If you have a Bible with you, please open it to 1 Corinthians um, chapter 5. We're going back to our, our, our series in 1 Corinthians. And, um, you know, I think we all kind of know the, the movie Willy Wonka with Gene Wilder. We all know that one, right? Delightful movie. Uh, but then you've got that one scene in the tunnel with the boat. Y'all remember that part? It gets, it gets unsettling. Well, the next two sermons are kind of the tunnel and the boat, right? It, it, it's supposed to be a little unsettling. It's, it's often said that, um, that what the gospel does is comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. If, if you don't feel some feelings of like, ooh, in the next two sermons, I've done my job wrong. These texts are supposed to have teeth. But again, that's why we did the gracious gospel thing earlier, okay? I remind you guys, grace is primary and sometimes it gets uncomfortable as well. So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. Oh, and by the way, some of you are familiar with this text and have seen it abused. I, those are the afflicted that, that are going to be comforted by this, okay? Um, so 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Please pray with me. God, may your word unsettle us. May we hear the hard message here and let it point us evermore desperately to the grace that is in Jesus. Amen. Um, back in 2004, Sharon and I were, were, were members in, a, in starting a new church back in Nashville. And we had two pastors, our pastor Craig, still a good friend, and we had another pastor, we'll call him Ray. And they led a, a little team. We had a ministry partnership over in London and they, they took a team from our church to London. And the second day they were there, Ray disappears. No one knew where Ray was. For a week and a half, Ray was missing. The FBI was investigating. British authorities were searching for him. Our pastor Craig and everyone involved were up all night, just worried out of their minds of what happened to Ray. And the last day of the trip, Ray came back, and he was wondering what the fuss was about. He was like, hey, guys, what? what's the big deal? Yeah, I'm here. What were you worried for? Something was afoot. And as an investigation, you know, the, the investigators figured out where Ray was that whole time. Ray, a, a pastor and a married man, was on a tour of the sort of, let's say, the seediest part of London's underground world for a week and a half. 
And needless to say, a decision was taken that Ray could no longer be a pastor and that he, was, he would need to be under some pretty serious church discipline to bring him to repentance. And Ray said, guys, guys, are you serious? What about grace? Hmm. What is grace? What, this, this whole idea that, that God loves us regardless of our performance we're not saved through our works, right? We're saved because of what Jesus has done for us. So does that mean that grace is a blank check and we can do whatever we like? And if it's not that, if there's actually a need for accountability and holding people responsible for actions, right? Like, is it grace with God, but inside the church it's accountability, so there's, like, no grace? Is that a taking back of grace? giving grace with one hand and taking it back with the other. And also, if we're going to be a community that does hold people accountable, right, like there's some sort of idea that we're pursuing holiness, like how do you avoid becoming holier-than-thou Pharisees that Jesus slammed harder than anybody? It seems like there's danger on every side, as is often the case. The Christian faith is like a path with a ditch on either side. And in this case, there is the, the ditch of taking license and using grace as a blank check. And on the other side, there's the, there's the ditch of being a Pharisee and a legalist, which is possibly worse. How do we avoid the ditches? How do we have grace, an uncompromising uh, understanding of grace, a total grace that we live out as a community and have accountability so that it doesn't become simply a blank check. Well, Paul, obviously in this passage, is talking a lot about accountability, but, but there's a huge grace that motivates, that drives the whole train of accountability. I don't know if you noticed it. Uh, you have to look pretty closely. Look at verse 7 with me. Paul says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. I thought that'd be a funny name for a church. New lump community church, right? <laughs> that you may be a new lump, what? As you really are unleavened. Now, this is ancient world imagery of bread making. And leaven is actually different from yeast. Leaven is when you would take back a little bit of dough from a, from a lump you had made for, to start next week, like sourdough starter, okay? But the thing is, is with leaven, it very frequently could turn toxic and moldy, and so any new bread you made with it would be toxic. And so when Paul is saying you are unleavened, right, this is a, the leaven is an image for sin and malice. He's saying who you really are is unleavened. Wait a second. Have we been paying attention in, in 1 Corinthians? For the, the church at Corinth is a dumpster tire fire, right? They are, they are sinful. They are wicked. They are irresponsible. They are licentious. They're divided. They're anything but unleavened. What's Paul talking about? He's saying who they really are, not their behavior, but who they actually are in the eyes of God is holy. Why? Look at what he says. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Again, Old Testament language. This is talking about the Passover, the celebration of the 
Exodus, right, where they, they had to sacrifice a lamb so that the, the angel of death passed over their house. He's saying Christ is our Passover lamb, and he has made us holy. We are God's holy people. That's first. We're not earning salvation through holiness. We have holiness. He's not saying live right so that you're saved. He's saying you're saved. Now pursue a life of holiness. It's to live out who you really are. If who you really are is holy, then a life that is holy is most authentic to who you are. Look at verse 8. He says, let us therefore celebrate the festival, that is the the festival of redemption, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but what? With the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Malice and evil is a blanket term for sin. Sincerity and truth means being who you actually are, right? And so it's, it's a life that flows from your true identity as God's holy people. We, we good so far? Did you all track with that? That was the toughest exegetical work we had to do. It's all downhill from here. So we ask, what does Paul say it looks like to live out of your, holy, your identity as God's holy people? What does that mean? It's to live who you are by repenting, by accountability, and by a new life. That is the outline. By repenting, by accountability, and a new life. So first of all, to live who we truly are by repenting of what? Of our sin. Look at verses 1 through 2. Paul says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. That is, a a guy had taken up with his stepmother. Okay. Now, to say that even the pagans of Corinth had a problem with this is a real doozy because... Ancient, you'll see next week, ancient Greco-Roman society, it was, they would look at our most libertine people and say, what a bunch of prudes. <laughs> you guys have all these hang-ups on sex. We're way freer than you. And, but the one thing they stopped at was this sort of thing. Okay? And so this is an egregious sin. This is over the top. And we're going to see that Paul is not mainly concerned with the guy. He's mainly concerned with how the community responded. How did they respond? Look at verse 2. You are arrogant. Saying, y'all are arrogant. You got this nonsense going on. Ought you not rather to mourn? That is to grieve, to repent. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. The, The main thrust of the passage is not the guy. It's how the community responded. He's calling them, repent of your sin. Okay? And... Most, even more specifically, we're not going to get all into verses uh, 9 through 12. I'm just going to read you verse 12. He says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? You see, he's saying, repent of your sin, not their sin. He says, don't worry about outsiders. Worry about yourself. Okay, so, so the first part of living out who we truly are as God's holy people is to Live, live who we are by repenting. Now, uh, at our house, we have a saying, worry about yourself. Okay, we, have, we have five kids, for those of you who don't know, and, and you know, when it comes to chores day, uh, we'll, we'll give each kid a job. You know, you clean the pantry, you do the backyard, you do this. Inevitably, 
one kid will come to myself or my wife and say, hey, so-and-so's not doing their job. And to which we'll reply, you know what? I noticed you're not doing your job. <laughs> Why don't you let me worry about them and you worry about you? And they'll worry about themselves. Okay, that's what Paul is saying. Worry about yourself. Don't worry so much about what's going on in, in the city of Corinth and condemning people and thinking you're better. You've got this thing going on inside of your church, yet you're arrogant. You are blind. You are unaware of what's going on with you. Boy, I feel like that could be said right to the church in the U.S. I, I think a lot of the time we are really long on judgment on people outside the church. It's practically a cottage industry in Christian publishing and television talking about how the ungodly are destroying America, this and that, and look at them, look at them, look at them. Paul would say, don't look at them. Look at you. Right? Because a lot of the time when we are busy judging those outside and we're judging others, like, like that's how Pharisees get made. You're very concerned about other people's sin, not aware of your own. That is totally inappropriate for God's holy people. That's not what it looks like to be God's holy people. Right? God's holy people, what it looks like is that you're worried about what's going on in you. You're concerned about your own life. You're concerned about the health of your own community. You know, one of the big problems at Corinth was division. Can you have division without arrogance? What do you guys think? Is it, is it like, can you, can you become completely divided if people aren't totally certain that they are in the right and everyone needs to listen to them? Like, that, that's the dynamic, right? It's very difficult. I'm sure there's examples, because we're good at dividing. But I'm sure there's examples of division without arrogance. But most of the time, the fuel for division is arrogance. You can be either arrogant or repentant. If, you, if your primary concern is looking in your own heart, looking in your own community and saying, are, are, we, are we actually owning what's wrong with us and repenting? If you're doing that, you're not super concerned about what the Kardashians are doing or, or this group that you don't like over here or your political opponents or that bad church over there, you know. You're not super worried about that. What you are super worried about is living out who you truly are because we are God's holy people. Now, not only is it repentance, but the, also being who we truly are requires accountability, okay? Now, is this idea of holding someone accountable take back grace? Well, let's take a close look at what Paul says. And I realize that for some of you, you've seen this text misused, and it's pretty triggering. I was listening to um, the, the podcast, Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Anybody listening to that? Oh, yeah, yeah. You should all listen to it. It's instructive. And there was an incident where the senior pastor pulled out this text and threw out two elders who were, who were only pushing back on what he said, just disagreeing with him. And he said, he said to the church, treat them as unbelievers. Their families were shunned, right? Like that, that's not what Paul intended for this text. What, what's important 
we're going to look at how Paul explains accountability and then talk about what does it look like to actually apply it. Paul says, first of all, that the church wields the authority of Jesus inside the church. Verses 3 and 4 says this, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. As Paul, in his office as elder and apostle, has passed judgment in this case. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, right, so the assembly is carrying the authority of the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus. Okay, so when the church is gathered in this capacity, it has the authority of Jesus to hold someone in its midst accountable. But what are you to use this authority for? Vengeance! <laughs> no, look at verse 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan. Ooh, that sounds worse. It's saying outside the church. For the destruction of the flesh. Ooh, that sounds even worse. It's not. Okay, some, some very dim-witted commentators I read said that, that the destruction of the flesh means he wants him to die. That's not the case. When Paul uses the Greek word sarx that gets translated flesh, it always means sinful nature. Look, he, for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What's the point of putting this guy out? It's for his redemption. It's for his restoration. That's the goal, is, is this guy needs tough love. He needs to hit rock bottom. He needs to come to his senses and repent. And that is the goal of exercising this accountability with the power of Jesus. And there's a good reason for it. It's not only for his own good, but in verse 6, he says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Remember that image from earlier? Doesn't matter how much new dough you put on this and try and make it healthy and try and remediate this toxic starter. If you've got a toxic starter, it is going to affect the whole. And he's saying the presence of this man in the community is, is going to destroy the health of the entire thing. Now, some important things to understand and take note of. This sin was public. It was egregious, right? It was over the top. This, is, this wasn't, he lost his temper, you know? It, it's, it's ongoing. You don't, in a moment of weakness, like, oh, I accidentally got together with my father's wife. Oops. Whoopsie, could happen to anybody. And it's also unrepentant. So it's public, it's egregious, it's ongoing, and it's unrepentant. And this was very, very likely someone of standing in the community. Okay? How do you get away with something that not even the Corinthians would countenance? Well, the most likely answer is that you were a noble. And if you were a noble in the church, that meant you gave some cover to a persecuted minority. Oh, well, so-and-so's there, so let's leave them alone. And also, it meant that you were putting money in the bucket. Paul says, don't regard that. Okay? So, you, you, you see how someone who has an ongoing, public, egregious sin from a position of prominence is going to not only be damaging themselves, but damaging and misleading the whole community. Now, how anti-gospel and anti-grace to have accountability like that. I want you to imagine some situations that are well within the realm of possibility, and maybe, just maybe, I've been through some of these. What if 
there was some, a man in the church who was discovered to have illegal and immoral content on his computer. Would you want him in a position to be a predator? No. Right? That's not caring. That's not loving him or the church. If there is a leader who is leading in an abusive way, right, just toxic, domineering, just destructive in the church, are they to be left in position to do further harm to the church and to themselves? If someone is taking it upon themselves to teach legalism, that we're saved by our works and you better try harder, ignore, ignore what the Bible teaches about the gospel, Right? They're, they're, they're teaching false teaching. Are they allowed to continue to do that and be destructive to Christ's body? If one of our governors is found to be in an inappropriate relationship and is unrepentant of that, what do you do? Grace? Grace doesn't look like letting it go all the time. Sometimes grace looks like tough love. Sometimes grace looks like doing your best to bring someone to their senses. We're God's holy people. We wield the authority of Jesus inside the church. How do you wield the authority of Jesus, folks? The answer is very carefully. It is not some, oh, well, this person slipped up, they're out. Right? In fact, this measure that Paul talks about here, like this text is not a comprehensive how-to manual for church discipline. Okay, it's not like, hey, so-and-so sinned, kick him out. <laughs> it's not, it's, Paul is talking about a, a, a measure of last resort when all else has failed. I'm happy to say that there is a whole host of things that, that our, our denomination's book of church order instructs us to do. Do you know who we discipline? Do you know who receives church, church discipline at this church? Everyone always. We're receiving it right now. Every time we hear the word of God and we're called to repentance, we're being disciplined. That's part of discipleship, okay? That's a normal thing. But then there's measures of church discipline when you get into larger issues. For instance, you would go to someone and encourage them. That's church discipline putting a tougher edge on it, and exhorting them, saying, hey, brother, sister, you're actually in sin and you need to repent. That's church discipline. Going to them again. Going to them a hundred times. Bringing someone else with you. Perhaps getting governors involved. If 300 times after that, they do not repent. There is the measure of censure. I don't even know what that does, but it exists. <laughs> okay? You see, and by the time you're getting to putting someone out of fellowship, it is a measure of last resort when someone is harming themselves, in danger of harming the church, and is in an ongoing and unrepentant uh, posture of heart. But you don't do it for spite or judgment or revenge. You do it for the goal of restoration. If you do have to put someone out of, out of fellowship, as soon as they repent is when they are back in fellowship. Okay? So what are we to do instead? Like, what is that? We've talked about the, the clamps, right? Repentance, accountability. But 
Paul also gives us a vision of what it looks like to live as God's holy people. It's, it's, it's actually a pretty cool image. He says, to, he says that our, our lives are to be new. You have a new self, you have a new life that goes with it. So back when I was um, a full-time musician, and I was like 23, when I wasn't on tour or making a record, I had literally nothing to do. And so my days would be like, I'd go work on music for a while, you know, play some basketball, uh, head out with my friends for dinner at 9.30 or so. We'd hang out, have a couple drinks, flirt with some ladies, call in a night, in bed 2 a.m. up at 10, okay? That, that's who I was and that's what I did. Not the best use of time, but nothing terribly wrong with any of that. Quiet. <laughs> but now, I'm a husband, and I'm a father of five. And if I were to live that old life with my new self, I'd no work. Hey, babe, I'm going to get out with my pals, 9.30 for dinner, flirt with some ladies, be back around two. Oh, by the way, I won't be up till 10, going to play some hoops in the morning. It's not working, not happening, right? There's a new me, there's a new life in the same way. Because we're God's holy people, we are to live a new life. It isn't about God killing your fun by saying to, to turn away from sin, to repent and be accountable. It's a call to a new life. Paul calls it a celebration of redemption. Look at verse 8. He says, let us therefore celebrate the festival. Now, he's talking about the Passover festival, Right? In the Old Testament, God brought his people out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery. That is the number one redemptive event of the Old Testament. We have an even greater redemptive event. We aren't just set free from temporary slavery like they are. We're set free from sin and death. And our lives are to be an ongoing, everyday celebration. Let me ask you this. How do you celebrate liberation from sin and death? With sin and death, right? Could you imagine if, if the celebration of the Passover festival is like, hey, for one day, let's go be enslaved again, guys. That'll be great, you know? Not at all. It, to go back to the thing you've been set free from is not to celebrate. That's what we're called to, is this new life without sin and death. And as Paul puts it, without the burden of sin. He says, let us celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil. He says, don't let that characterize your life now, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, a new life that you're called to. The call to holiness is not a buzzkill of some kind. It is not God saying, oh, you like that, do you? Well, guess what? You're not allowed. Deal with it. It's instead God calling his holy people to joy and freedom. Sin cannot take away our salvation. It can take away our peace. It can take away our joy. It can take away our family. It can take away our health. It can take away our relationships and our witness. And God wants so much better for you and for me than to live in the old leaven, this old toxic lifestyle. It's not you. It's not you anymore. He wants to see you restored. Think of it like this. 
Uh, if you ever want to see some art, go to Chris Kunicki's shop on Colfax, Kunicki Restoration. The man is an artiste with woodworking tools. And he takes these old wood furniture things and they're all covered in schmutz and lacquer and whatever and paint. And he just patiently works away. He takes all that stuff off and he, he renews it. He restores this old stuff, right? That's the idea is God wants us to be free of that. And if we're like, well, I'm free in Christ to do whatever I want, so I'm going to be like, I'm going to just put some more like, like some fuchsia paint on this wood furniture and whatnot, you know, it's counteracting. It's going against what God is doing in his holy people. We are God's holy people. We need to live as who we truly are, by repenting, by accountability, and a new life. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would not be crushed by your word, but would instead be encouraged to leave behind the leaven of the old life. That we would not consider walking in righteousness to be a burden, but instead an invitation to joy and freedom. We thank you that our sin is paid in Jesus and that there is nothing we can add to it. In Jesus' name, amen.